I'm going to go ahead and read Proverbs 5, 15 through 23, because that's going to be our focus for today, and you can follow along. It says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. A heavy topic, but one as sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father, one that it would be wise for us to engage with. And so we started last week. Last week we covered verses 1 through 14. If you weren't with us, I'm going to try to do a a really quick, maybe five-minute recap, because I want this to be holistic and make sense. But we're going to finish with a section that I just read today from 15 through 23. So the quick recap here, in the book of Proverbs, we're picking up in chapter 5, and what's going on here, essentially, is we have a loving father giving instructions to his son, okay? It's a son who's starting to see things in the world a bit for himself. He's old enough now to start grappling, wrestling with some of the more difficult realities of life, and I really wanted to see ourselves in the story. I wanted us to identify both as the earthly parent who's real with our kids those we have influence over, parents who will help show our kids the truth about what's really out there and who will help them navigate it a bit. But bigger picture, I wanted us to see ourselves as the child in the story, sitting with and listening to our loving Heavenly Father and the warnings He has for us. This is not just a father to like a teenage son. This is God, our loving Father, to His sons and daughters those of us who call him Heavenly Father. All right, so the chapter starts with us um, being instructed to listen to him. He wants us to know the truth so that when temptation comes, because it will come, he wants us to be able and, and be equipped to speak truth to ourselves about what's really going on in these times. Instead of shielding us from the realities of the world, He helps introduce us to what's real and enticing, and he's good to show us what's real. He's good to be honest, to show us what this leads to, and so that's what's going on here concerning sexual temptation. In verse 3, he identifies the real feelings we can have toward this enticement. It seems really sweet. It seems like honey. This thing that draws us in that seems sweet, this might be either with words that flatter us and draw us in, It might be with physical characteristics in others that seem sweet and draw us in. It might be with ideas and fantasies that might draw us in and captivate us through our imagination. He says, all of this is real. 
This is all enticing. We experience this differently. And it seems really sweet at first. But here's the full picture. Then we go to verses 4 through 6 to really expose the whole picture. What seems sweet at first really isn't, right? Instead of tasting like honey, no, it actually in the end tastes like wormwood, which is a bitter, poisonous herb. And this enticement is sharp as a two-edged sword, which is a weapon designed to kill. This path leads to Sheol, the place of the dead, and it's constantly shifting and changing, evolving, trying to keep us distracted from our good Father and His words and what He has for us to enjoy. We pointed out the reality of this shifting nature of the enticement of sexual sin. We, we talked about how Solomon likely wrote this. He wouldn't have known what internet was when he wrote it, but he knew what this enticement still was. Thousands of years later, it's shifted and evolved. Now we know this thing called internet that draws us in in all sorts of ways. Fifty years from now, it's going to evolve. People are going to deal with this category in different ways. We are reminded that the enemy is crafty. He wants to destroy us down this foolish path that leads to our death. Instead of following the wise path that would be following Jesus. Okay, and then our loving father, right? He tells us what's real. He shows us the whole picture there of what that leads to. But like any good father, he doesn't just send us out on our own, say good luck with that, right? No, instead, he introduces it, but then he says, I'm with you in this though. You don't have to do this on your own. We are reminded that while this temptation leads to death, while it's sharp as a two-edged sword, we have access to the one who's sharper, right? Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is good news, church. This is good news. Then he proceeds to give us the first action plan of sexual wisdom. In verse 8, he says, Keep your way far from it, right? Do not go near the door of her house. Here's what's real. Here's what it leads to. So do not flirt around with this stuff, sons and daughters. Don't think you can dabble in it a little bit and be okay. It's designed to destroy you, child. So keep your way far from it, he tells us. Then he proceeds in verses 9 through 14 to help the son visualize how life might play out for him if he doesn't listen. It will not only potentially cost him his spiritual eternal life, but will also cause misery, difficulty for his days here on earth. His time, work, and money will be scattered among many people and in many ways because of sexual sin. There are real earthly consequences, he notes. Then he ends this this future picture by telling him if maybe at the end of life he would finally come to his senses, perhaps. Maybe get humbled in a certain way. It might lead him to a point of reflection that would just say, Man, I wish I would have listened. We talked about how when we don't listen to reproof or correction, it really reveals a disconnect in our relationship with our loving Father. Do we really trust Him? This disconnect becomes part of us, and it's because of our pride and has nothing to do with our loving Father. So now we move in to verse 15. And through this back half of the chapter, I think we're hopefully going to see today, generally speaking, how sexual wisdom, those who are wise in this category, 
how sexual wisdom satisfies and how sexual folly or foolishness destroys. So go with me here as we pick up in verse 15. As I take a drink of water, ironically, it's not the point, but 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. We'll stop there. If we know anything about wisdom literature, we know a lot of times it's written in poetry form or song form metaphors, riddles, proverbs. Proverbs themselves are short, pithy sayings. They're designed to say something so that we remember it. Okay, But usually what these do, just like songs we sing, they don't fully explain everything that's going on. Right? We put things that are memorable to music so we can remember these truths. We have riddles, we have proverbs, we have metaphors. The design is to reflect a truth but then for us to have to dig a little bit. This is the way of wisdom. It's it's slow. You examine, you consider. That's what's happening here. So this is not quite literally saying drink, well, go outside to your cistern and drink from it. No, we know that's not the truth. But what is this getting at? Well, throughout the Bible and the Old and New Testament, as many probably know, uh, water, excuse me, is a metaphor for life and salvation. When we come across water, usually when... Jesus or others are talking about water and what it represents. It's usually a good, good thing. In Psalm 23, it says, Our good shepherd leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. Right? This is good. We have a good shepherd. We see him provide and lead us to something that quenches our soul. Humanly speaking, we also know that water quenches thirst. And so I think all of these things are working together here to show us an element of the wisdom of God. What is he telling us here? Well, what he's telling us is those who are wise sexually will faithfully quench that thirst only with their spouse. In these verses, the wife, in this context, again, he's speaking to a son, so his spouse would be a wife, but this applies to all spouses, In these verses, the wife is being represented as the source of water. Anytime water is mentioned here, we see a cistern, we see a well, we see springs, we see a fountain. That's all represented by this wife here. And this is the second action commanded to the son. We remember the first from verse 8, right? Keep your way far from this temptation. Run away from it. Avoid it. But instead of just running away from something now, we see something that some of us are supposed to run to, and that is our spouse. So I want you to consider this statement that we'll have up on the screen. For the married among us, then, we could maybe say sexual wisdom is to actively avoid temptation and to actively pursue your spouse. A cistern is a container that holds water, you know, something similar, maybe like a rain barrel. It would collect water for a specific purpose, right? You probably know what a well is. The wise command here is saying, drink from your own, meaning quench any and all sexual desires through your own spouse. 
when it comes to our physical bodies, God's plan for us then is that there's only one morally legitimate source of satisfaction of this thirst for sexual enjoyment, and it's our spouse. And just so we don't um, get off track here too quickly, we've got to remember this is talking about our physical bodies in the lane of sexual wisdom, right? This is not talking about ultimate satisfaction in life. Your spouse is not ultimately able to fully satisfy. That role is for somebody else. But it's highlighting here that there's some enjoyment you get within the confines of marriage that you don't get outside of God's rightful design. This is his plan for us. Okay, And we know we can focus here, zoom in a little bit on the seriousness of marriage because we know marriage is serious to God. We know that he compares Christ's love for the church to a marriage relationship, right? We know that God helps love and protect us through the local church. Marriage is important. He's the perfect and faithful spouse. He cares for his bride. But he's not shying away from there being a real bodily thing to enjoy about it. It's a picture of what we can enjoy in community as the bride of Christ. And so with eyes to see, we can enjoy this gift from God better and truer when we enjoy him. He's the one who created it and created us. And he created this specifically for us to enjoy. Right? And marriage is not a serious thing to the world, but it is to God. We're reminded from Hebrews 13.4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He's calling for faithfulness here, right? The way of wisdom is to keep your sexual experiences within the marriage and nowhere else, and it will go well for you in this area. When verse 16, it's posing this question, it's saying, should your, your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Remember, the springs are your spouse. So it's kind of asking this question, would you want her to go out and have sexual experiences apart from you? Absolutely not. It's just another way of him helping us see this in a different light. Maybe when we consider our spouse and their heart and their feelings, this might help us stay away from this temptation. Just one more thing that might help us resist, actively avoid this and pursue our spouses. Verse 17 concludes that thought of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In this case, you wouldn't want your spouse doing this, so don't do it yourself. Let this life-giving, sex-quenching water be for your spouse alone without involving anybody else. In verses 18 and 19, we actually stay on this theme. I wanted to separate them, though, purposely, because these two verses, while they are still more words of wisdom, they're also, by most, considered a prayer from a loving father into the situation of his son and his spouse. It's sort of a prayer over him and his situation, what he would love to see happen for the good of his son, for the one that he loves. So may we read that into our own lives today. May we read it as such this morning, as a prayer. It says, let your fountain, again, this is your spouse, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth 
a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This extends this idea of marital faithfulness and goes into more specifics about the goodness that can be experienced. It mentions the wife of your youth, right? No matter how old we are, our wives will always be the wife of our youth as long as we're with them. And the wisdom of God is saying, no matter how we age, no matter how our physical bodies evolve, by pursuing God's plan of faithfulness sexually, we will always be able to experience great joy physically with our spouse. If we have eyes to see through our loving Father who created us this way, this is his instruction. He's saying there is enjoyment to be had here. From 1 Corinthians 7, we're reminded, we, we looked at this last month um, when Grant preached about no adultery. We're reminded from Paul, says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I want to focus on this part that says the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife does. This type of thinking. And then when it says, do not deprive one another, this is a mutual type of thinking that takes each other into account. This type of thinking leads us to a mutually beneficial marriage bed with satisfaction for everyone. Do not deprive in quantity, nor deprive in quality. Mutual enjoyment and physical satisfaction is his design for this. In verse 19, it says, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's a physical engagement here that should lead toward some sort of intoxication. This is kind of a weird word to think about, maybe, for some of us. Be intoxicated always in her love. This word intoxicated comes from the same word as drunkenness. Sometimes you think of that drunkenness, you hear, yeah, they're intoxicated because of alcohol. That's what this root word is coming from here. Other translations, I think, say ravished or exhilarated. Be ravished always in her love. Be exhilarated. The idea here is to be a little bit out of your mind. Right? And that kind of that's kind of funny in, in a way. It's kind of weird to think about. This is what he's telling us. This is not to be very static and orderly necessarily. You're, you're to kind of lose inhibition to a degree because of the love you have for one another. If you think of drunkenness, that's that's obviously a negative, right? The drunkenness, the intoxication for a drunkard is because they're a little out of their mind because of too much alcohol. Like the alcohol actually limits the brain function, right? They lose part of their mind. 
Within marriage, though, he wants us to be out of our minds in a good way with, with one another physically. He's created us to experience our spouse physically in a way that only he can bless spiritually. It's a way we can't fully understand why, but it can give us deep spiritual satisfaction. And it's a good gift. And so this wise father here, he's praying for that to be so in his son's marriage. May they enjoy one another both in the quality of, of married lovemaking and in the quantity. Saying don't deprive one another of something so good. Remember the statement we put up earlier. We'll put it up again. For the married among us then we can say sexual wisdom is to actively avoid temptation and to actively pursue your spouse. There's all sorts of wounds in this category, I'm not going to attempt to try to um, apply everything that could be applied. I really want the Spirit to work within us today. That's been my prayer. Those who are married and who aren't experiencing this goodness from God, in God's perfect design, a loving Father wants this for you. If it's not happening, there might be different reasons for that, okay? I want to, that's, this is delicate. I want to be open to that. But I also want to suggest that maybe today might be the day you put yourself in a position to pursue your spouse in conversation about this. Right? The marriage bed should be a great playground of fun and freedom and intimacy with no shame present. Right, Your heavenly Father wants this for you. So if this isn't the case, I think it would be a good thing if one of you were wise and humble and vulnerable enough to start the conversation. And if that happens, the other one needs to be humble and vulnerable and brave enough to stay in the conversation. And just know if there's any shame or discomfort in these conversations, know that that's not from your heavenly Father. That's not. It's from the enemy. He would love to continue to distract and speak lies into this category over your marriage bed. To actively pursue your spouse in this area, when we talk about our bodies wanting to pursue one another. This might also mean to just let them speak into things concerning your body. Appearance, physical characteristics, kind of all these categories. And I want to speak more to the motivation here than I do specifics, but your motivation physically in life with your body should be to serve your God with your body. But for those who are married, your motivation physically in life should also be for your spouse. You should be motivated for them to enjoy it and nobody else. So I think it might be helpful just to ask the question here. Let's search our hearts a little bit. What motivates you to look the way that you do? Let's reflect a little bit on our body. Why do we do things for our body and to our body? What's the driving factor in our hearts behind that? If you're married, your spouse should be the primary answer here. 
If you're thinking of others instead, know that this is sexual folly. This is foolishness. This is sin. And it'd be good to do a heart check today and turn from it. There's freedom here to be explored. Know that if that's your motivation, something will be hindering this big picture for you. And we've talked about the married. All of us are not married in here, so this also brings up the obvious question, right? What, what, what about the unmarried among us, right? We see a specific call to people with spouses, but how do the unmarried demonstrate sexual wisdom? And I think a cool parallel here that I want to bring in for you to consider is with what happened between Jesus and the woman at the well. Common story here. In John 4, I'm going to paraphrase. In John 4, Jesus tells a woman at the well to give him a drink, and she essentially asks him why, because at that time it would have been strange culturally because of who they both were. But he answers by basically saying, if you knew who I was, then you would actually be asking me for living water. And she's obviously confused. But if we remember our spouse as a well of the source of water, that will not fully satisfy. In marriage, we can, there's some enjoyment there, but that's not our ultimate joy. I like the parallels here of this story. Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for living water, eternal life. Right? She's confused, and then he, he then says to her about the water from the well, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, not fully satisfied. But whoever drinks of the water water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So I like the parallels here, the the water metaphors and, and everything from Proverbs 5, because the same can be said about sexual relations within marriage. These don't fully satisfy all of life's desires and cravings. And so I don't want us to fall for the lies. Those who are unmarried, I don't want us to fall for the lies of the world that might make you think you can only be happy if you're married, or you can only be content in Christ if you're able to use your bodies in certain ways. Jesus is telling her, whoever is content in him will be fully satisfied for life. Back to 1 Corinthians, concerning singleness, Paul says, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. What Paul's doing here, he's making the case that singleness is a good gift from God, just like marriage is. And note that he says, he's saying this as a concession, not a command, okay? He's highlighting some benefits, not saying you must do this, but that's a really important note that we need to understand about God's plan for us, okay? We, the reality for us from God the Father is there's not a strict command to get married, nor a strict command to stay single. But there are great ways to experience the love of God when it comes to sexual wisdom or wisdom with how we are to use our bodies. He doesn't hang the unmarried out to dry. Like, well, I don't know. I had a plan for the married. I, I got nothing for you. I'm sorry. No, that's not the case. 
Because the call for the married is actually more than just our spouses, right? So to the unmarried, that's the same call. It's a higher call. And with our bodies, our God created us to be very complex beings. We know that. Even the smartest among us who know everything they can know about the body still acknowledge, yeah, we just don't know why that works. This numular headache that I've had for years, no one can explain that. If anyone of you know, talk to me afterward. I'd love to hear. There's things about the body that are too complex. God has created us in ways and for ways we will never fully comprehend. But he's clear about some of his purposes for our bodies. And so I just want us to not listen to the world. I want us to to pursue his counsel. I want him to, to tell us what our bodies are meant for. And so this is something he has revealed. Back to 1 Corinthians. It says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Pretty clear and straightforward. But it is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We don't have time for me to dig into the differences of sexual sin here. One of the differences is that we sin against our own body with this type of sin. The effects of sin is no greater with sexual sin, but it does manifest itself different, and I think that's why it bleeds into so many other normal, everyday functions of life, maybe more commonly than other sin areas. But what I wanted us to see here is our bodies are meant for the Lord and to glorify Him in our bodies, he says. This is true for the married and the unmarried. For the married, we see some specific instruction on how to utilize our bodies for His glory. But for the unmarried who are in Christ, the reminder here is that remember, those who are joined to the Lord become one spirit with Him. Literally, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And that, he's saying, is more satisfying than any experience with your body here on earth can offer. Spiritual satisfaction is eternally better for us. And this is good news for everyone in the room. Paul's appeal for singleness is that when you're not married, you don't have to divide your attention as much, essentially. God can satisfy you actually more than any human body can. He will satisfy you more than this person and that person. And when he goes on there at the end of that section we read, when he says, for those who can't exercise self-control, they should marry. We need to be careful with statements like that. We could easily get off track with something like that and think it means something it doesn't. He's basically saying here, if you have the desire to marry... You should pursue that in a wise way by still drawing near to God for his plan for you in that. If we read it ignorantly, we might think he's saying, hey, if you have sexual sin in your life, just go get married. That will fix it. We know that's not the case. 
So that's not what this means. He's saying, hey, it's good to be single because of all the satisfaction you can have in Christ. That's all you need. But if you think God has maybe given you this desire to pursue marriage, then then pursue it according to his will and his plans for you. This is difficult, though. Again, the world creeps in. The wisdom of the world creeps in with all their content and all their whispers. The world says, pursue marriage. Here's how you do it. Go date a bunch of people, right? See who you're compatible with. Probably sleep around a little bit. Get your body involved. Definitely, you know what you definitely need to do? You definitely need to get that kiss, right? Isn't that what all our movies, TV shows, cartoons, everything, right? The time of the kiss, reality shows, everything based around the body and feelings and lust. And it all goes toward that kiss, right? The music and they zoom in. What are we to believe about kissing then? It must be magical, right? It's all foolish, flesh-based, feelings-based, not rooted in our loving Father. I'm emotional because I hate this truth that I'm about to say. The world, the enemy, wants to use you as an object and wants you to use others as objects to fulfill the lie of lust that in the end leads to death. This enemy that's on the prowl wants to use you guys. So for the unmarried who who desire marriage potentially, a pure and eternally satisfying pursuit of a spouse actually wouldn't involve your physical body at all. You'd be able to connect your mind and your heart without this clouding your mind, like drunkenness. Sexual sin will cloud your minds in ways that will not be glorifying to God and will not ultimately be good in his eyes and good for you. Sadly, a lot of us know this, right? And I want to expose here the lies of the enemy. I want to, I want to give it a name What might the opposite of listening to God our Father be? The opposite might be to listen to our Father, the devil. We don't like to think of that category. The devil's not my Father. When we act sinfully, the fruit in our life would represent that the devil is our Father. I want to pull in the the words of Jesus from John 8. He says, You are of your Father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Last week we talked about jelly beans, right, for those who are here. And I said, if I give you a jelly bean that looks really sweet, and I say, hey, eat this, it's great. If you ate it and it was awful and made you puke, you would call me a liar. You say, that's stupid. Why did you tell me that? The enemy wants to lie and deceive with your bodies, but our bodies are meant for the Lord. He will fully satisfy us beyond any sexual encounter. Anything we can do with our bodies, he will satisfy us in a greater way. Despite what the devil and the world would say, our bodies are not designed for sexual immorality. So those with the desire to marry, pursuing God the Father, will be the wisest path toward a spouse. The beauty of that is if you walk in faith with that understanding, then when the time is right, you'll likely be led to someone who's doing the same thing, independent of you. You won't be content to settle for anything less, and you won't need your body to be a part of it to try to seal the deal or try to get somebody to think a certain way about you, you'll be too content in Christ. You'll know that's foolish. So for the unmarried, whether you desire marriage or you don't, if you don't, Paul says this is good. That's good. Embrace that. But for the unmarried, do you believe your loving father when he tells you that he is enough for you? That he can satisfy you completely for this season of life? From Psalm 107.9, we're reminded, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. What a sweet verse to remember. What a sweet word that our Father fully satisfies. So another statement we're going to have up on the screen here. Um, if you're into like the coffee mug stuff or the Christian bumper stickers, we don't, we don't have enough sexual sin bumper stickers out there. Um, this might be one for your coffee mug. You might have to wrap it around a few times because it's long. But what I want us to see for the unmarried and the married, right? This is for all of us. A way to look at sexual wisdom might be this. To actively resist your father, the devil, who wants to destroy you and to actively pursue your Father in heaven who wants to fully satisfy you. Sexual wisdom will satisfy. Sexual folly will destroy. Do you remember? Not only are you tempted, do you remember when you start going down that path, there's somebody behind there who wants to destroy you. So our loving Father lays out this picture for us. In the first 19 verses of chapter 5, he concludes the thought in verse 20 by saying, Why then? All of this I told you. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman then and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Why would you want to settle for anything less is the question. I care about you and you'd be a fool to still want something that leads you to death, so please don't. And though it's maybe a little icky, icky was the best word I could think of, though it's a little bit icky to have mornings like this, to kind of sit in stuff like this, 
I think these are good for us to be able to reflect ourselves, to consider, to evaluate, to examine. We know other places that God's word tells us there's wisdom in mourning, right? Weeping. There's wisdom to be found in the depths of some of these emotions and feelings that don't feel good and happy and light all the time. There's wisdom in lamenting. That's confusing sometimes. What it makes us do is stop, slow down, and see and remember that our God is still who he says he is. His plans are still better for us. So even in the sadness and the mourning, he's still good. Wisdom exists in those things because he exists in those things with us. Verse 21 speaks to this reality about letting us examine and sit back and consider. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The idea of pondering our path here is the idea that wise people will try to see things as God sees them. That's what it means to ponder our paths. It's usually slow, reflective, highlighting the will of our Father, filtering things through His Word before we act, before we speak. It's not quick with emotion, but is instead faithful and true. Proverbs 4, 25 and 26 say, Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. The way of wisdom is to try and see how God sees. But in the end, as we know, all will not choose this path. So the loving Father concludes this section, this thought of Proverbs Proverbs 5 with a deadly reminder. Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. Something unique here. Remember up in verse 19, we looked at the word intoxicated. We talked about that, kind of out of our minds. The words at the end of 23, if you look there, are led astray. This is actually the same root word as intoxicated. It doesn't seem like it is. It seems like it means something different, but it's the exact same root word. And it's interesting that we get to see one extreme of how it plays out positively, right? The kind of out of our mind with, with our spouse and their body and everything that God has for us. But then the opposite of that is seen here. It's concluding that with the reality of lack of discipline in this area, and because of great folly, people can start losing their minds a little bit because of this sin. I wanted, to, I wanted to point that out because I think when I come across the term led astray, usually I think of it's more casual, kind of like, oh, like kind of veering off a little bit. But we can't understand it this way. This is instead, it's saying the fruits of no discipline in this area will result in someone to start losing bits of consciousness, bits of their mind, bits of their rationale because of sexual sin. Romans 1 talks of God giving people up to the lusts of their hearts and it bleeding into other areas of life. And we have examples, sadly, of this 
today all over the place, don't we? Sexual sin, addiction, leading people into just borderline insanity. Doing things that make no natural sense. We can see this playing out here. This actually changes part of your mind. So it's serious. Our loving Father is saying, don't let it come to this. Consider the wise path and all that I have for you. Taste and see that it's good. And so I want to use, last week I mentioned Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. I mention it again. Actively fight with God's word in this area. One of the easy things to remember, hopefully Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Revisit that often. We looked at a little bit from those last week. And today, um, I want to kind of help us conclude here with a section from Proverbs 6 that just helps us identify this whole truth just kind of from a different angle. It says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Quick reminder, mothers and fathers should be speaking in and instructing. It's not just one or the other's role. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Remember back in verse 1 and 2 in Proverbs 5, they wanted the truth to be on his son's lips. He wanted him to know. He wanted him to be ready to act. Why? Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Because, verse 22, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. Think of all the sexual sin that happens when we lie down. If we rest and lay down with no purpose or intentionality, and we let and consume things, we let stuff happen, all the avenues of temptation when we lie down. He's saying, if you keep this close, then when you lie down, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Musicians, you can come on up as we prepare to close. I think... um, I think when it comes to sexual sin, church, we are recovering fools. That's a term you've heard us use before. Grant and I adopted that term from Zach Eswine. It's, it's recovering fools. It's kind of a way to think of it. You're still identifying as having some foolishness in you. You're being self-aware. But we're recovering because once we we're fully foolish in this area. But now through the power of Christ, we're able to turn from some of the folly, start down the path of wisdom, grow in maturity. For those of us who believe, he has given us eyes to see and he has given us the Holy Spirit to help us live wisely here, right? But sadly, that doesn't mean we live perfectly now, right? We're not flawless and perfect in any area of sin. No, instead, though, it means that God sanctifies us. He makes him more like makes us more like Christ as we grow in our dependence of him for our sin. So growing in dependence of him would mean and maturing would mean that we're quicker to confess sin. We're quicker to turn from it. We don't let it linger. It doesn't mean that we fully conquer sin, but we're quicker to expose it and bring it out into the light. 
the enemy wants us, especially sexual sin, the enemy would love this to stay in the darkness, right? He wants to whisper in our ears, keep it hidden. You know what will happen to you? He wants us to live with the shame. The enemy wants you to live with the shame of sexual sin. But our God is not a God of shame. We know that. Specific to sexual sin, the enemy wants, I think, church-going people to think of sexual sin as worse than anything else. But we have to remember sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin. Okay, and that's basically when people deny the power of the Holy Spirit. They deny that God is who he says he is. They are not children of his. They deny his power. But the irony here and the good news for those in Christ who still deal with sexual sin, you do not deny the power of Christ. That's all you hold. We must be reminded of that today. The only way to rightly deal with sexual sin is through the power of the cross. And those who believe have been gifted the power of the Spirit. And through those eyes, we just say, Lord, help me. And through those eyes and that awareness and knowledge and love, we can actually expose sexual sin. Not because of us, but but because of the one who saves. What can wash away our sin, even sexual sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we find our true forgiveness in Christ. We run from temptation and we run to him, our lovingly, our loving Heavenly Father who fully satisfies us in everything. Let's pray.